Hi everybody, this is Jen Matteris, and before I start the podcast, I just wanted to say a few things. The first thing I wanted to do is say thank you again to everybody who's been listening. We're really close to having 5,000 listens for the podcast, which is kind of staggering to me that anybody else is listening to the podcast, much less that many people that many times to that many episodes. You know, we're not the biggest podcast in the world, but the fact that anybody else wants to listen to me talk and ramble on for an hour, an hour and a half sometimes about, sometimes even two and a half hours about any disaster is something that I just am uh, really appreciative of. You know, I, I made the podcast at the beginning because I wanted a podcast about disasters and I wanted to listen to it. And the unfortunate thing about making the podcast is that I can't listen to my own voice, so I can't even listen to the podcast. <laughs> but the fact that you guys are listening is something that I really appreciate. It takes a lot of time for me to do all of the research that I want to do for every single disaster to um, get it into these episodes, not the least of which because I, I try to cram as much in and sometimes, um, you know, I have to, I have to do it around a full-time job and, and trying to write, um, the books that I'm working on. So, you know, the fact that people patiently wait two weeks, sometimes longer for a new episode is something that I, I really appreciate and I'm very grateful for. So I just wanted to say thank you once again for that. The second thing I wanted to do was say that if you'd like to help support the podcast, there are several ways to do that. The easiest and least expensive way is to tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell whoever you think would be interested in listening to the podcast. I would love to get more listeners on and I welcome everybody who wants to listen. Uh, you know, if you think that there are certain disasters that friends of yours may be interested in, you can always direct them to those episodes. Maybe they might want to listen to the rest of the podcast. Uh, if you have a friend that may be, um, into mocking movies, there's always the movie breaks that you can reference. Word of mouth is great. And if you want to recommend the podcast to anybody, I would really appreciate it. The other way that you can do, uh, you know, that you can help the podcast that is also free is to write and review uh, on iTunes, on Stitcher, on whichever podcast app that you listen to the podcasts on, you can certainly do that. And it's very helpful. It actually uh, kind of pumps up the, the podcast. And I know, especially on iTunes, it can bring you up the list of, of, uh, podcasts that are being listened to. And so um, people kind of understand that, you know, people are listening to it and people like it enough to take the time to rate and review it. Uh, We don't really have any reviews on iTunes as far as I know. I'm almost afraid to get one. uh, But if you would like to rate and review us on iTunes, I would certainly appreciate that. Uh, if you want to help us out more uh, monetarily, there is always uh, Patreon. You can help support us just with, you know, a little money every month. Uh, it helps do things like pay for resources and, you know, uh, pay for iPhone, my iPhone to, to uh, have, uh, have coverage and for um, uh, SoundCloud so that we can keep those episodes up and, and all those little things like that. But um, I'm kind of hoping that I can replace my laptop. So if you'd like to help donate to Patreon so that I can help uh, do that, then that would also be appreciated. Um, 
Also, if you do donate to Patreon and you donate uh, $25 or more, you have the opportunity to request a certain episode uh, subject. So if there's a particular disaster that you're interested in or that you would like to hear me talk about, then if you donate $25 or more a month, then I will take your suggestion and move it to the head of the line. Um, I I pretty much am open to anybody suggesting disaster subjects, uh, but that particular donation, I try to get that episode done as soon as possible. If you'd like to donate once and help out, then you can do so by, uh, with PayPal, uh, the, address that I use for PayPal is disasterareaatmail.com. Um, you can send us a little money. You can send us a lot of money. Um, I certainly wouldn't turn it away. <laughs> um, but whatever, it would help um, to do things like help set up a website, which I'm still trying to do, um, you know, uh, uh, those sorts of things, buying resources, uh, paying for rent and, and and bills and everything else. Um, that sort of thing always helps out and it kind of releases the stress and makes it a little bit easier for me to get all the research done that I have to get done so that I can do these episodes. Um, if there's any other way that you would like to help support the podcast, I am more than grateful for the assistance and I really thank you for listening again. It's, it's a real pleasure to be able to do this podcast and I'm really grateful that there are people out there who are enjoying it. So now that that's out of the way, thank you very much for listening. My name is Jennifer Matteris, and welcome to Disaster Area. Episode 13, TACA Flight 110, May 24th, 1988. Everyone lives. Everyone knows the story of the miracle on the Hudson, They've seen the footage, they've seen the news stories, and next month there is a movie coming out about the miracle on the Hudson. It's called Sully, it stars Tom Hanks, and it's directed by Clint Eastwood. It's a relatively big movie, and already it's kind of Oscar baby. It's about the miracle on the Hudson, like I said, and specifically about Chesley Sullenberger, the pilot. And the first time that I saw the trailer, I was kind of disappointed. It feels a lot like it is ringing drama that it doesn't need to out of a story which is already dramatic enough. Now, I'm probably going to see the movie. Let's not lie. It's a plane crash movie, and it's based on real life. I am almost definitely going to see the movie. But the trailer itself did not make me happy. There's kind of references to you know, how, you know, were you drinking? When was your last drink? You know, um, our test pilots were able to land that plane in a simulator. Why weren't you? And it just seems like it's things that you really don't need to add to a story that's dramatic all on its own. And as I was watching the trailer for the movie, all I could think was that I would rather see a movie about Taka Flight 110. There's several reasons for that, and I'll get into them, but it mostly boils down to it being the Ginger Rogers to the Miracle on the Hudson's Fred Astaire, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Um, basically, in terms of the Miracle on the Hudson being the Fred Astaire, 
Talk of Flight 110 is the Ginger Rogers in that it did the same thing that Fred Astaire did, just backwards and in high heels. If that reference makes any sense to anybody else but me. So, Taka Airlines, to start out, is a family-owned business based in El Salvador. Uh, the plane in question for this particular flight was a Boeing 737-300 series. It was a pretty new plane. Uh, the plane was first flown on January 26, 1988. It was acquired from Polaris Aircraft Leasing in May, and the plane was only delivered to the airline two weeks before the incident occurred. So it really, it had that new paint smell. It was just like that sort of a plane. Um, the pilot of the plane was a man named Carlos, Darden Carlos Dardano. Carlos Dardano was a third generation pilot, and he was only 29 at the time of the flight. Now, this is in 1988. Six years earlier in 1982, uh, Carlos Dardano was flying for this small air taxi business when he was caught in the middle of gunfire resulting from El Salvador's civil war at the time. He was on a small grass airstrip in the jungle, and he ended up getting shot in the face. It is exactly as bad as it sounds. Uh, he did manage to get back in his plane and fly his passengers to safety, even with his absolutely terrible wounds. It took him 20 minutes to reach another airport. So you have to imagine the bullet that struck him, um, it struck his face. Like I said, he, he was shot in the face. He was actually shot in the left cheek. The bullet entered basically right under the apple of the cheek, the rose, that kind of, you know, the rose of the cheek right up there, and crossed upward towards the bridge of the nose. At least that's the way it looks in pictures. And uh, let me just recommend that if you're going to go looking for things regarding this particular incident, maybe not look at pictures of Carlos Dardano's injury. It's very graphic. Um, and that injury to his cheek is very bloody and it is a basically a ragged furrow going up his cheek. It was a pretty bad uh, injury. What was even worse about it was that the bullet took his left eye. Uh, it traveled, like I said, it traveled from about where um, the left side of his, his cheek was and, and it exited through his left cheek um, by his eye to leave this, this absolutely terrible scar. Even six years later, it, it was very noticeable. But in spite of his injuries, he actually later managed to become a certified commercial pilot. This is pretty impressive for a guy with one working eye to become a certified pilot. This is somebody who doesn't really have that perception anymore, and he's flying these, these commercial airlines. It's actually a pretty impressive feat. Now, on May 24th, 1988, the flight in question took off from Phyllis S Philip S.W. Goldson Airport in Belize City to Moissant Field in New Orleans. That's where it was headed. Now, the flight, it had started in San Salvador in El Salvador and stopped over in Belize. There were 38 passengers on board the flight. And one of the passengers, Lee Burmeister, um, she was a young woman who had spent a month in Costa Rica. Uh, she was headed home 
uh, she had actually just had surgery in what she described as a kind of a small, uh, little hospital in the middle of nowhere, um, to, uh, repair a ruptured appendix. So, uh, she was good enough to get on the plane, but, you know, she still had, um, stitches in her stomach. There were seven crew on the plane. Uh, like I said, you had, the captain was Carlos Dardano. He had more than 13,000 flight hours, 11,000 of which were in command of, uh, the flight. So he's, he was captain for most of these flight hours. The first officer was Dionisio Lopez, and he had more than 12,000 flight hours himself. Another man who was on the flight was uh, Captain Arturo Soleil. Uh, he was actually a flight instructor with Taka Airlines. He was just on board to check out this new plane. It was basically like a free ride. He didn't really have to do anything. He was just kind of watching them fly this plane and checking it out and, you know, basically kicking the tires and <laughs> checking checking everything that was happening with this plane to see um, what it was like. Uh, when the plane left Belize City, this, the weather was actually really great. It was sunny, lovely. And if you don't kind of know where Belize City is, it was it's kind of down by the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, that much you may know. Um... And so it's going towards New Orleans, which means it's passing over the Gulf of Mexico. As the plane flies over the Gulf of Mexico, it encounters a very strong thunderstorm. The weather over the Gulf of Mexico can be unpredictable in the month of May. This particular storm came on very suddenly. As Lee Burmeister described it, uh, you know, it was actually, it was a really nice day, and then it was just the blackest sky um, she had ever seen in the daytime. As the plane descended from 35,000 feet, the crew starts to notice these areas of light precipitation in their path on the radar, uh, with heavy, areas of heavier precipitation on either side of, of them as shown on the radar. Uh, the Amor radar on this plane operates on an X-band, and it has kind of limited ca- capabilities. Uh, for example, it, it cannot sense hail. When you would look at this plane, uh, I'm sorry, when you look at the radar, uh, you would have these yellow and green areas on the radar. Uh, they would indicate lighter precipitation, and there would be red areas to indicate much heavier precipitation. But it really wasn't very detailed. Um, it could be kind of confused. Uh, and because of limitations like that, it was, it was best for planes to kind of just avoid these thunderstorms as best as they could. At this point, the crew itself was mostly worried that the weather would scratch the paint on this brand new airplane. That was a big concern. Uh, they really weren't worried that you know, anything bad was going to happen. It, pilots fly in weather like this all the time. The flight entered the clouds at 30,000 feet, and at this point, the crew puts the plane on uh, continuous ignition and turns on anti-icing to combat the effects of the precipitation that is uh, coming down and entering the the engines. The icing, if it does happen in these engines, it can cause the engines to flame out and lose all power, which has happened before in lots of other plane crashes. Now, the crew continued to fly through the areas of light precipitation shown on the radar, but they quickly ran into heavy rain, hail, and turbulence 
even though they were flying in this light precipitation band in this in this green area. Um, like I said, when you look at the radar, um, there are certain things that these um, pilots are looking at. Uh, like I said, the green is the lightest precipitation, and then you go to yellow, and red is pretty intense precipitation. If you see black, there's no precipitation sensed by the radar, and if the uh, radar is quote-unquote clear, it's a radar shadow or a place where um, the radar signal is attenuated, which indicates the highest intensity of precipitation. So the pilots kind of, you know, what you really want to do is just avoid precipitation in general, but at this point, the flight is descending. It is coming in for a landing. Basically, it's descending. So there's really not much they can do to um, avoid the weather at this particular time. At 16,000 feet, the plane is, is flying and it's descending down and both engines flame out at the same time. It's not unusual that engines flame out. Both engines flaming out is a little weird. Uh, now an engine needs three things to, to keep going. It needs fuel, air, and heat. If one of those is taken away, the engines flame out. In this case, it was the heat. So the crew contacts uh, TRACON, which is the uh, New Orleans uh, air traffic control, and says, we're in the middle of a storm, we lost an engine. And they quickly correct themselves and say, both engines, we lost both engines. At this point, the, the, the plane, now that it has lost the engines, has no electricity. They don't have thrust because the engines aren't working. And they're basically just gliding. Uh, they're a big glider. When this happens, the plane is still going forward. It doesn't fall out of the sky when it runs out of electricity. It keeps going forward and down like you would expect. It's basically just like a paper airplane at that point. You throw it and it goes forward, but there's only so far that it can go and it really can't go up without, you know, it really can't go up basically. It needs the power to back it up to go up and it doesn't have that. The crew starts the auxiliary, auxiliary power, power unit, which provides the electricity needed to restart the engines in an emergency. It's not meant to be used for the whole flight, it's just meant to restart engines, um, you know, maintain basic uh, systems in the event of an emergency. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a generator of sorts. But uh, before they start that, they do attempt to use the airflow from the still moving plane to restart the engines, which is called a windmill start, but it doesn't work. So they turn on the APU, they restart the engines, but the engines are unable to accelerate to a normal idle speed, and they're not producing enough thrust. The crew radios back to the tower. Okay, we've got both engines back now, but when they would try to use the throttles on the engines to get more power going, the engines would overheat, and that would threaten to catch those engines on fire, which is... I don't think I have to explain that that's a bad thing. The crew kind of looks at their options at this point. This is not a good thing. 
nothing about this is good. The, you know, the weather's horrible outside, their engines aren't working, and they can't turn them back on. So they are forced to shut down the engines to prevent them from catching fire. At this point, they have to land. They have no option. They have to get down. And they really don't have much of a choice about going, okay, well, which airport are we going to? They start discussing their options with the air traffic controller. Now, they could try to coast to New Orleans International or New Orleans Lakefront, but both of those options seem pretty unlikely. When their trouble started, they were still 20 miles from the air- the airport that they were going to, which is New Orleans International, and they were 11 miles from Lakefront. So, you know, they have some leeway, but not enough to reach those airports. They also confirm with the... Um, controller that they do have visual contact with the ground. At this point, they're low enough that they can see the ground before them. And they discuss the possibility of perhaps landing on an interstate runway, uh, highway, excuse me, that's seven miles away. It's not unheard of for a plane to land on a highway when something like this happens. In fact, it happened a few years before this to a Southern Airlines flight, which almost the exact same thing happened to it. They were flying through a um, band of precipitation and they didn't understand that ahead of them was a more serious storm and they were struck by hail, at which point their engines went out. Uh, They had to decide on their options and they finally decided to land on a highway. Uh, They were landing on this highway in Georgia and they ended up hitting a van and and killing some people on the ground and and they did also um, hit, uh, they also killed some other people on the ground as far as I understand it, but it wasn't a very successful landing unless, you know, I mean, some people did survive, but it it was not a good thing And, and as Captain Dardano um, did say, you know, you have to have that concern that, you know, highways have cars on them and cars have people in them. And so you, you have to kind of think about that. But this whole time that they're talking, the plane is rapidly losing altitude. It is going down. It's not going straight down, obviously, but it is going, flying forward, going down just in an in a nice even slope which isn't i'm not saying that in 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 any sort of um hopeful capacity it's it's not a good thing even if they're they're going down at this particular angle um that it means you know the fact that they're losing altitude it means that their options are kind of falling by the wayside they they can't reach New Orleans International, they can't reach lakefront, they're 2,000 feet from the ground, and they're seven miles from lakefront at this point. They are not going to reach the airport if they try it. What they have ahead of them um, is a runway of sorts, as Carlos Dardanos puts it. He said, you know, we, we may end up using the runway ahead of us, which is the Gulf Intracoastal Waterway. It's basically a river of sorts. Um, I say river, I'm not exactly sure what kind of flow it has, but it's it's a long waterway. And it's basically the same option that the Miracle and the Hudson crew had before them, which is land on the water. You don't really want to land on the ground if you are, in the case of both of these planes, in the middle of a city. Um, you know, you don't want to take that option. If you can land on water, you know, which you can't really, it's it's very difficult. It's very hard. Um, if you've ever seen the 
the video of the Ethiopian Airlines flight, which was hijacked and ended up kind of flying around until it ran out of gas and uh, ended up having to crash near a beach on the Comoros Islands. It's not pretty when uh, planes land on water. You know, like I said, the miracle on the Hudson was a miracle on the Hudson for a reason. Planes don't land like that, at least not all the time. And so they were not looking at something good when they were looking at that waterway. They're at 1,500 feet above the ground, and they, they tell the air traffic controllers that they plan to ditch, which is land in the water. But then they notice something. There is a levee, which is, you know, there's a lot of those in New Orleans. And the levee is off to the side of the waterway. It's off on the right. And if you look at a picture of it from above, I mean, it is about the shape of a runway. It's it's long and it's thin. But you have to understand, runways that planes land on are normally not just the runway. There's also areas around the runway. You know, there's there's other things. It's not just, a, you know, this strip of land and then water on almost all sides around this, this levee. But the crew really doesn't have a lot of options. It's either land on the levee or land on the water. And... If they land on the levee, at least there's not the possibility that, uh, you know, the, I guess you could say, um, kind of the unpredictability. That's the word I'm looking for. The unpredictability of what happens when you try to land on the water. You know, there are, obviously there are unpredictable elements to landing on a levee, but we'll get to that. The... Passengers are told to assume the craft's positions. Um, they had to take off their shoes. They had to take off their jewelry. You know, you put your head between your knees and you uh, put your hands behind your neck. This was easy for most people. It's, it's easy for, for most people. But Liebermeister had the issue of the stitches from her appendectomy. And so that was really difficult. She really couldn't bend over the way the rest of the people on the plane were, which just kind of makes things worse. You're already scared that this plane is going to crash, crash, excuse me, and you have stitches on your stomach. And so you have to sit there and and think, okay, I can't really bend over all the way. Does this mean I'm going to die? It's obviously a terrifying situation anyway, and now you have this going on. So the crew puts the gear down to prepare for landing. And they're kind of just treating this like a normal landing, but there's a little bit of an issue. The levee, like I said, is kind of off to the right. And with a small plane or glider, it's a lot easier to maneuver the plane than it is to maneuver one of these big passenger flights. It's not something that you just kind of, you know, weave through the air like a, like a fighter pilot. You, you just can't do that. And the plane needed to be moved to the right to line up with that levee. So Carlos Dardano does uh, what's called a side slip. It's, like I said, it's normally something that you do for small planes and gliders. If If I were to describe it, I would basically say what happens is you dip the right wing and it kind of moves over a little bit and then you right yourself. Um, it's kind of like parallel parking, basically, with a, an enormous plane. 
Um, which kind of explains why it's a little more difficult, because, you know, parallel parking in an enormous plane would be hard enough. But they do get the plane lined up with the levee. Uh, there there are some issues that they do have to deal with, obviously, you know, with this landing, as if it weren't already hard enough. Uh, the plane has no thrust reversers, uh, so they can't slow the plane upon landing. Um, instead of having brakes on these planes, what they, what they do is kind of, um, you know, have those thrust reversers, and it kind of um, slows the plane. And then, of course, Captain Dardano lacks step perception due to his, his eye injury um you know here's somebody who who basically i mean that's got to make it infinitely more tricky to do this when you have this sort of um uh, eye issue that he's got to deal with that and of course as they're coming down you know captain dardano's talking to the plane and he's he he basically said that he was saying i got you baby i got you come on you know you know just talking to it like it's um like it's a woman um that sort of a thing the levee itself um the levee had a bank on the left side and that that made the fit even more tight for this plane and its wings you're looking at this levee and you see the pictures of it and it's kind of, the bank's a little bit raised. So, you know, you have to worry that you land this plane and the wing comes down and it clips that bank and you just start flipping. The plane also needed to pass over this concrete wall that was at the end of the levee before it landed there. So the plane comes down, comes down, comes down, and it lands. The plane does have a difficult time with the wet grass on the levee. It's, you know, it's not paved like it is in an airport. It's grass and it's been raining constantly and the ground is soft. So it, the wheels really have a, a difficult time catching on the grass. And for, for a moment, they think that they're going to slide right off the end. But they do finally manage to slow to a stop. And... Uh, Captain Dardano said uh, in an interview that the co-pilot, you know, they were kind of happy and they're cheering in the in the in the uh, cockpit, and the co-pilot said in Spanish, obviously, "Landing in a field, eh? Aren't we just like crop dusters?" The levee on which they landed is next to NASA's misshued assembly facility which is kind of weird you know all the places they could have landed they landed to some place which builds rockets and um you know this particular facility worked on uh several saturn rockets several different versions and they also built those external tanks the big red tanks for the space shuttles these are the kind of things that they were building and a plane lands on the levee next door it's kind of interesting at the time, it was the only time that a plane had managed to land safely away from an airport with no power to its engines. The flight attendants, you know, they, they get out, they open the doors, they deploy the slides. Everybody gets out. During, now, during all of this, while all of this is happening, while the plane lands, while the people, uh, the flight attendants get up and let them out, and the, the crew's celebrating, everybody's celebrating, they're so happy to be alive, the... Controllers at New Orleans Tracon 
have lost contact with the plane. At about 700 feet, I believe it was, they lost contact with the plane, and they really didn't know what was going on. They didn't know if it crashed. They didn't know if they um, all died. They had no idea what happened. So they uh, have to deal with this and find out what's going on. The controllers that had been dealing with the plane were relieved of duty so that they could make a statement about what happened. This is what happens with these plane crashes. If you're a, an air traffic controller and a plane crashes on your watch, um, if, you know, if it's your fault, if it's not your fault, whatever, they take you into an office and you know, they take, take you away, you're relieved of duty, and they sit you down and you describe exactly what happened in minute detail. And so you have these controllers who were taken into this taken into this room and they have no idea what's happening and they're describing what happened. And so the other air traffic controllers who are dealing with other flights are releasing a flight to take off and they vectored it specifically so that it would both stay below the weather and be safe and also so it would be able to fly past where they last heard from TACO 110 and tell them what was going on. So this plane flies over where TACO was. And you have to imagine that they get back to what this sounds like. They get back to um, to air traffic control and say, oh yeah, it landed on a levee. <laughs> this, this plane landed on a levee. It's just sitting there. Um, and, you know, of course, everybody is thrilled. This is great news. They don't know what's happening with anybody. They really haven't heard anything yet. But they do know that the plane is down and it's in one piece and it basically just landed on this makeshift runway. There were no injuries. Nobody died. No injuries. The only concern was with Lee Burmeister. She still had those stitches in her stomach and people, you know, were genuinely concerned. Um, as she said, there were a couple of nurses on board who kind of checked her out. And so there was an ambulance that came, but it just kind of took her to the hospital just to check her stitches, make sure she was all right. It was kind of interesting seeing pictures of the wreck. If you see the pictures of the wreck, it's not even a wreck. It's a plane with the inflatable slides down, and it's in one piece. There's nothing wrong with it. And it's sitting next to, you know, this assembly facility for space program flights and pieces and all sorts of things. It's actually kind of an interesting um, composition. The uh, plane itself, though, when you get close up, you could see some of the damage from this. Um, there's a picture of the nose cone of the plane itself. And the hail had almost sandblasted away the paint from the nose of the plane. There's three stripes across the front, uh, blue, red, and yellow from top to bottom. And then there's a, red, a black circle on the nose. And the black circle is almost completely blasted away by the hail. And around that you can see these little dents uh, in, the, in the metal from where the hail hit. It's pretty impressive to look at. Uh, you know, you had this hail which was striking on the plane that was about an inch in diameter. I mean, they have these little dents in the plane. They can, teach, they can sell how big this hail was even though they don't have it anymore. The engines, which were the problem, were CFM 56 engines. And they were on use on a lot of planes around the world. They were a pretty popular engine. Now, for both engines to flame out in flight is really rare. 
And so the investigators from the NTSB were really concerned about this. You don't want these engines that are on so many planes around the world to be flaming out in flight. It's not a good thing at all. So what the investigators did was they took a boroscope, which is a camera on a long tube, and they fed it into the engines from TACA 110. And they discovered that the turbines inside the engine were charred. So they were really concerned about that. They really wanted to find out how that happened. But they quickly realized they needed to remove the plane from the levee. They couldn't just leave it there. The wheels were starting to sink into the ground. This is a plane that weighs almost 48 tons. It's pretty big. Um, and so they have to discuss their options for getting the plane off this levee. And there's three ways to do it. They can take it apart. They can get it off of the levee by barge. Or they can fly it off. In most cases, you don't fly the plane off the, the levee. It doesn't, or wherever else they may have crashed it. That's not the way it works. But in this case, it kind of made sense to fly it off the levee. So they had these test pilots and they had these engineers and they kind of, you know, were talking about how to do it. And what they decided was that they could just repair the engine on the scene and fly it off the levee. They were able to remove and replace the right engine because that was too far gone. The left engine itself, they could worry about fixing it when they got into uh, New Orleans International, which is where they, they flew the plane. But they just basically removed the, the problem engine and the test pilots got the plane, put just enough fuel on it to get it to Moissan Field in New Orleans. And I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. And the plane was able to take off because it had hardly any fuel, no passengers, no extra weight. It only had to go... 1,200 feet down the runway that it was using, I should say, because that really wasn't a runway. That was a levee, and it was basically more of an access road um, that was uh, adjacent to the levee, but it was that's what they did. They just, just basically rolled it over there and started, and, and they got they only had to go 1,200 feet, and up they went. And they were able to fly it back to uh, New Orleans, and repair it and the plane was actually back in service within a month so the engines the engines are taken back to the GE test facility in Ohio and they start testing the engines um, to by spraying water directly into the same type of engines um, but it takes it without issue they just keep spraying water in it and it just keeps doing it um, the FAA standards for these engines uh, is to take hail between one inch and two inches. But some of the hail that Taco 110 encountered was smaller than that. It was smaller than one inch. So what happened was that it was able to kind of slip its way between the fan blades and melt. And so now you have excess water in these engines. And the investigators figure out how much this extra, extra water is, and they 
add it to what they were already spraying into the engines. And it still wouldn't fail. Okay. That's one solution down. Let's find out what happens next. So they start looking over more information and they show that the flight data recorder um, has the engine performance down to 30% shortly before the flame out. Why was it down that low? Because the plane was beginning its descent to landing. So the test is retried. Um, when they do those water intake tests at these test facilities, they have the, the um, engines up at full speed. But they really don't account for, you know, what happens when the plane is landing and something, you know, and, and the engines are lowered. So they retry this test with the engines lowered to 30%. And what they discovered was that when the engines were idled like that, it could not handle the amount of water that the FAA said it should be able to handle. The engines, you know, they had been certified by the FAA, uh, but that much water with that speed was the issue. The plane had encountered heavy rainfall along with 30 seconds of heavy hail. The amount of waterfall, uh, water that they had encountered was a liquid water content of 25 to 30 grams per cubic meter. What that means is, or what that's equivalent to, is about 30 inches of rain per hour. So, pretty heavy. The hail, like I said, entered into the engines through the fan blades. Basically, it wriggled its way right through there. Just kind of blind luck, because there was so much hail, it went right through. And, you know, what it did to kind of go through this engine is basically bounce around like a ping pong ball. Um, if it was really lucky, it went all the way through right into the core. Uh, if it wasn't lucky, it deflected off the fan blades and then went into the core. Basically like a bullet. And that's when it would melt in the core, and that's when the trouble began. Now, there was an inlet in the engine intended to diffuse the effects of storm weather to protect the engines, but like I said, the hail behaves less like air and water and more like bullets inside these engines. It bounced around and it caused a pretty impressive uh, uh, bit of da uh, damage in there. If you look at pictures of the engines from TACO Flight 110, it's, it's not pretty. I... I, I would be terrified if I saw something like that. So you have this spinning of the fan blades and the speed of the plane. And those things combined affect how much hail is able to enter the engines. If it's going a lot faster, it's a little more difficult for the hail to go in there. But because the plane was going slower and the fan, fan blades were slowing down, you have these bigger gaps in there that the hail can just slip right through. So the investigators start implementing design changes to these engines almost immediately. First things first, they changed the shape of the cone in the engines. Um, think if you're imagining an airplane engine, that circular, the little round part right in the middle of the fan blades. Uh, if you look at them today, I believe they have a little curly cue on the front, so when it spins, it kind of looks like um, a little hypnotic. It's that thing. Uh, it was conical at the time. It was kind of like an upside-down ice cream cone uh, sitting on this fan blade. 
And so what they decided to do to uh, help deflect the hail, in this case, was they changed it to a shape which was more elliptical, more rounded. And that rounding gave the hail uh, a bit more deflection away from the fan blades. Now, behind that big fan blade that you see is, of course, the engine, and you have the um, you have this kind of metal around the outside of the engine. What they did was another thing that they did was that they cut back on the splitter behind the the uh, fans, and they cut it back like. I can't say how much, but they basically cut a, a little bit back, and basically um, it was all the way to the fans in the pictures that I, the drawings that I saw, the kind of the um, diagrams, I guess you could say, and um, the new uh, design had kind of cut them back a little bit, so they weren't so close to the fan blade. So there's a little gap there, and that allows for um, water and hail to kind of be centrifuged away from the core. It kind of gives them, um, you know, if you've ever seen a centrifuge in action, it kind of, you know, moves these things away just based on, you know, the use of gravity and spinning them around, whatever. Um, and so th this allowed a pathway for the hail and water to, um, to exit. There were more variable, variable bleed valve doors to allow precipitation to escape the core of the engine. Um, basically what that means, more vents in the engine. That's what it meant. Uh, there were other improvements as well. They kind of changed the uh, float path contour to make it easier for variable bleed valve doors to allow weather debris to escape. Basically what that means is the outside of this engine, um, not the outside that you see where, you know, the big round thing that you see on the outside of the plane, but on the inside where the engine is, um, those metal, the metal case on the outside, they kind of added, uh, made it a little more curved. And so you already have this gap right behind the fan blades where hail and water can escape and you have them had um you have more of these vents these variable bleed valve doors these little vents that are more places for the hail and the water to get out with the added curve that gives it more um uh, it makes it a little easier for these vents to get this precipitation out of the engine and the final thing that they did was they uh, uh, they added adaptive engine start logic for all full authority digital electronic controlled or FADEC engines, uh, which the Tekka engines weren't. But uh, these particular um, this particular addition was meant to improve starting performance and reduce the risk of engine damage during a start sequence, which was kind of a problem. The thing about the way that the uh, crew restarted the engines was that they did what they were supposed to do. But the issues with the uh, engine meant that there was more time needed for them to wait 
for them to restart the engines, and they just couldn't do it, not in the position that they were in. They, they were, you know, between a rock and a hard place. They had to restart those engines, and it just wasn't going to work. So this particular addition is meant to make sure that when the, um, you know, if a pilot is in that position again, and they have to restart those engines, they are not going to damage those particular engines, and they can keep them back on. The plane itself is actually um, still, well, it was still in use as of February. I'm not sure if it's still in use now, but it was flying with um, Southwest Airlines as uh, N697SW, still going strong after all these years. (laughs) And as for Carlos Dardano, I'm not sure if he's still flying, but I do know that two of his kids are now pilots as well. So it's, you know, you're you're up to fifth generation pilots there. It's actually really interesting. Um, the reason that I did this episode, um, I did plan to do this episode eventually because I actually find this disaster really interesting and really cool and really uplifting. Uh, but the thing is that I asked a friend of mine, Mara, who's been really great about recommending the podcast, like literally everywhere, um, if there was any disaster that she wanted to hear about on the podcast. And she said... Uh, I just want to hear something. Yeah, well, she not her precise words, but she said basically, I I want to hear something with a happy ending where people are nice to each other. And I said, I think I have some of those. Um, <laughs> I, and I suspect when I did say, well, I have some plane crashes that kind of fit into that. And she said, great. I think she may have suspected that I was going to do the miracle on the Hudson especially considering that I have um, spoken on my Twitter about um, Miracle on the Hudson, uh, the trailer for Sully, and kind of knocked it. And uh, I think she may have suspected I was going to do that, and I didn't. Um, (laughs) I may save that and do that as sort of a special kind of thing when the movie comes out, if I have to say anything after I see the movie. Um, uh, You know, it's one of those things where... um, I would really like to see this particular disaster as a movie. I think this would be a lot, really interesting. Um, God knows it made a really interesting air crash investigation episode. And I think what makes it really interesting is that um, when the air crash investigation episode first aired, I had never heard of the disaster before, ever. And I'm an air crash nerd, so (laughs) the fact that I hadn't heard of it was really pretty impressive. But like I said, I, I I would really prefer to see a movie about this, I think, than the one on the Miracle on the Hudson. I think it would be a lot more interesting. You get the flashback to the El Salvador Civil War. Um, but at the same time, um, I just, I really don't like that trailer. Um, I, I genuinely dislike the trailer for uh, the Sully movie. And I, I feel like... Uh, Clint Eastwood or whoever is involved in the movie is trying to make it a lot like the movie Flight, which is a movie that um, I have an issue with. I mean, it's not a bad movie per se. Um, the crash sequence is very well done, and it's very hard to say that any movie with Denzel Washington in it is very is is completely awful. Um, he was he was very wonderful in it, um, and the like I said, great plane crash, but. Um, I felt I felt like the lesson that we were supposed to learn from watching flight, which is that pilots shouldn't drink and do coke before they fly a plane, is completely disproven by the fact that 
you have Denzel Washington already, and even when he said his messiest, he still seems like a guy I would trust with my life. But he's he's a guy who convinces us within the first 15 minutes of the movie that it really doesn't matter if he does drugs and gets drunk before a flight and then sleeps through most of it because when worse comes to worse, he's a really good pilot. And even when he's stoned, he can still fly a plane through a plane crash. It's not like he caused the plane crash. And that's kind of the the thing that bothers me about Flight, is that it's a movie that basically argues that it's basically the drunken master of flight mo- of of air crash movies and i don't think that the people who were making the movie really got that maybe Denzel did uh i imagine John Goodman may have um but um the thing is that i feel like the miracle on the hudson movie is kind of being made into that with the you know um you know kind of trying to ring drama where there really isn't any and with the taco 110 flights i think it would make a great movie i think it would make a movie that could be done in real time i think it could be uh done in a way that isn't tacky or like a TV movie. I think that the flashback to the El Salvador Civil War would be really interesting. Uh, you know, just watching this guy uh, in a small air taxi with a terrible wound basically save the people that he's meant to fly while having this horrific wound on his face. And like I said, this is like a Ginger Rogers to, to the Miracle on the Hudson's Fred Astaire. He had you know, it wasn't, I don't want to say, I, want, I don't want to know if I want to say it's that much worse than The Miracle in the Hudson, but it's definitely, I think, it's more interesting to me. Um, it, you know, here's a guy who has one eye that the fact that he's managed to become a commercial pilot at all is, is in, beyond impressive. But the fact that he has managed to turn around with his one eye and his lack of depth perception and land a plane on a levee in an emergency is, you know, not to be tacky and not to be redundant, but it's a miracle. And it's just impressive to me that this is the kind of disaster that, you know, people don't really know about. You know, a lot of people know about this disaster. They know about the miracle of the Hudson. Miracle on the Hudson is showy, and it's, and it's, well, I don't want to say showy, but it's, it, it makes it sound worse than it is, but, um, it's, it's the kind of disaster that, you know, it's a feel-good disaster, uh, people came together, everybody did what they were supposed to do, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of, um, there's a lot of uplifting moments to it, and that may be another reason why the trailer for Sully really bothers me because it seems like it's taking something which is really uplifting and adding some really dark elements to it that really don't need to be there. Um, so, I'm, you know, if there's anybody out there who's in Hollywood and really wants to make a really interesting movie that's really uplifting and makes you feel really good and it's still a disaster movie, Talk of Flight 110 still works. That is my argument for somebody to make a movie about Taco Flight 110, because Carlos Dardano is amazing. With that in mind, I I should start kind of referencing what I'm going to talk about next episode, but I have no idea what I'm doing next episode. Um, I'm still trying to figure that out. I have another air 
crash that I'm thinking about doing, but I'm not going to do it next episode because I am trying to keep from doing the same kind of subject matter um, one episode after another. So I'm trying not to do a fire after a fire, a plane crash after a plane crash, a mass shooter after a mass shooter. Um, so I'm trying to juggle it a little bit. So um, we'll see what I do next. But until next time, stay safe. Thank you.